Welcome to episode 129 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. What's going on? Not much, not much. You know, it is starting to be spring, and I know that we make fun of ourselves for the reformed weather cast, but sometimes you just have to report on the weather, and it was like 45 degrees, and the parking lot is full of mud, but I'm not even bothered by it because it's warm and the snow is melting. Well, this is because in your part of the world, you really only get those three seasons, which are winter, summer, and then they're split by mud season. Yeah, which is is only like four days long, um, but it's it's nice to have some melt, some snow melt. Although we did get eight inches of snow uh, yesterday, so it's kind of, you know, whatever, but (laughs) it's warm today. And you really can only talk about today when you're talking about New Hampshire weather. So that's very true. Although I thought you were about to go like you're about to Jesus juke that and say something about really today has enough winter worries for its own. No, no, there's it's just straight up warm. It's nice. We walked the dog. She got covered in mud. It was great. I used to think that saying about how if you didn't like the weather, just wait 10 minutes was like a uniquely New Hampshire thing. But I'm beginning to learn, I think just everybody everywhere says that. And I want to say, where is your license to use that phrase? I mean, I didn't, I, I, we used it in Minnesota before I ever moved here. So I actually assumed it was, it was just a Minnesota thing. But I think anywhere that has like four seasons that fluctuate, uses that kind of thought. I mean, it's probably not like in California where they're like, if you don't like the weather, you're insane because it's beautiful all the time. (laughs) Wait seven years because we might, that might be the next time that we have a little bit of bad weather. Yeah. I think it's just wait for the fires to come for you. Yeah. That's a little, that got dark real fast. got a little dark. Yeah. Sorry. Totally apologize (laughs) for that. (laughs) All right. We are off to a roaring start. We that are. also could have been a horrible fire pun, which I didn't mean to. So yeah, what what are we? Save me, save me. What are we doing tonight? Well, we got some question casts, but before we do our question casts, we got a little bit of housekeeping. So that is true. Jesse and I we announced on the show last week that we've started a brand new project called the Public Domain, and uh, we spelled public with a K to sound extra reformed. And um, we launched and we've had some really good feedback. So there's two episodes up and ready to go. Uh, By the time you hear this, there'll be a third episode that is ready to go. You can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, anywhere else that you find podcasts. And Jesse, we have some sweet new gear to go with the new show. Oh, so much good stuff. So everybody should go on over to Collective Wear. Confessional Wear. Confessional Wear. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> What's collective wear? It's probably nothing. It's probably nothing. So buy that domain he, now because it's going to be big. Oh, we're, we snatched that up right now. Somebody's going to hear this and try to steal it. So here's why I was thinking of collective wear because one of the great items on confessionalwear.com is some super sweet Reform Collective gear, no. including Reform those... Collective. What's the Reform Collective? <laughs> Why do I want to say collective so badly? There is something called the Reform Collective. I actually used to write a blog for the Reform Collective, but it's not it's not on the the website. 
Wow, this is we the have worst professional promo collective, ever. which is not they don't have gear on the website, but they're on worst, the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Worst promo ever. How about you just tell me? How about you just tell me what kind of good gear is on confessionalware.com? Well, there's some sweet new uh, Reformed Brotherhood gear. So we have the Reformed Standard, which is a, a project that I do uh, where I work through the, uh, the catechism. Uh, and there's a sweet new 15-ounce mug. Uh, we love our 15-ounce mugs. And there's a sweet um, public domain mug with our cool John Calvin reading a book logo that uh, Paul Cox did for us. So good. But there's also an entire store dedicated to according for uh, according to Christ. So they've got mugs. They've got a, like a trucker hat. They've got all sorts of T-shirts. They've got a polo, which is really cool. My favorite, and I think this is your favorite, is they have a mug that says Arminian Tears on it. <laughs> And then it says underneath it, it says caution, maybe bitter. So good. And I was like, dang, someone threw down the gauntlet. So good. That's the kind of thing you want to carry around. That's going to be a conversation (laughs) starter right there. I know. I know. Although people might think you say it's Armenian tears and they'll be really offended. Oh, that's true. Still. It's that's the kind of piece that you want to have. set that bad boy out like on your desk at work. Bound exactly. to get some questions. I love yeah. it. So head over to uh, confessionalware.com. Uh, you can check out all the cool stuff that he has there. Um, and, you know, he's been such a great brother to us. He's been such a good friend of the show. Um, he's been so helpful getting this merch set up. Uh, so go over and check out his other stuff as well. Um, he also has Rooted Apparels, which is his other um, sort of like apparel company that he runs, where he has some other kinds of uh, not like not theology related uh, t-shirts. It's got like veganism and stuff there. Um, but check it out, buy a t-shirt. Uh, if you use the checkout code reform brotherhood, you get free shipping on your entire order. So we would love it if you could support him a little bit by purchasing a mug or a, a t-shirt or something like that. And whenever you purchase something from that site, not only does it help our brother there whose business it is, but it also helps whatever podcast you're supporting. So yeah, it's double the reason, double the benefit, double the blessing, double the love, double the mint, whatever you want to say. So it's clear that I actually know very little about what's actually on that <laughs> website. But here's one thing that I do know with absolute certainty, and that is you got to go 15 ounces on your mug. Like yes. if you don't have a 15 ounce mug, are you even American? You don't, you got to get away from this like eight or 12, like the baby mugs. I know. The 15 is where it's at. It is. And the handle, I mean, you and I have both said it. <laughs> the handle is the best part because you get your whole hand in that bad boy. So here's the thing about the handle. Apparently I've made such a big deal about large handles in the past that now people are calling me out like in person about how I feel about big <laughs> handles. But the thing is, if you, you cannot knock it unless you've tried it. You want, if you're a dude in particular, you want the big handle because it allows you to do that. Like the, uh, I don't know what you call it, like the cupping move where you can like go through the handle with your whole hand yeah. and grab that whole mug, like with authority. And it allows you of course to grab the handle, but like you don't have to do any kind of this weird, like English tea time thing. We have to throw out the pinky or you can only get two fingers in there and then your hands cramping up because you're in a meeting trying to drink some coffee. Next thing you know, your boss is looking at you all strange and you've lost your job just because you won't get a 15 ounce. This is super specific. <laughs> <laughs> that was the most specific thing I've ever heard in my life, I think. I'm sure somebody's going to call me out for that. But yeah. anyway, yeah, the 15 is is way worth it. I'd also like to just point out, I don't know if you've noticed this or not yet, 
But we kicked off a little bit of dust jacket gate last week with our conversations about dust jackets. Oh, did so people really respond to that? Apparently, this is more divisive than I thought. So this might be like the new baptism debate on the in the reformed world. In reality, like three people made comments, but I'm just going to pretend that it's like sweeping the internet. I know that it is a very polarizing topic, whether to keep dust jackets or throw them out. And again, there's not a lot of middle room. So like we talked about, either people like on my side, the correct side, feel that that's part of the book and should be honored and cherished. There's so much work going to. Or on your side, people just literally like dispose of them like as soon as physically possible. Like it's almost like it is like a contaminated piece of something that you just need to get rid of. It's all right. I'll let you be right about dust jackets because I can be right about baptism. (laughs) So I'll let you have the dust jacket one. I revoke my thank you because (laughs) I thought that you were not setting me up for Uh, something more serious. So this seems like a good time for us to tackle some questions. Yes, let's do it. We're in a good mood tonight. We must have got lots of sleep or something. I don't know. I guess. Well, here's the funny thing that, of course, nobody knows, and that is that you and I were kind of getting wild before this even started. Like, really, we should have pushed the record button like 20 minutes ago. It's true. It's true. This is the tamed down version, believe it or not, right? This is like the more relaxed tame. Something. (laughs) All right, let's do some questions. (laughs) Uh, You stopped in the middle of a sentence. The more relaxed, tamed... No, that was it. Kind of like, you know, tamed, chill. That was like I was emphasizing with my lack of continuation that it was chill and tame. All right. Okay. Let's get on to some questions. <laughs> let's do it. All right. Here's the first one. Hey, brothers. Uh, my name is Alex from very cold Southern Ohio. And first, I just want to thank you uh, for your podcast. Uh, it's been very, very edifying and educational for me, especially the systematic theology series that I just finished. Uh, but I first wanted to start uh, start by saying that my question involves uh, uh, heretical Christology. Uh, so I have a friend who is a follower of William Lane Craig, and he subscribes to Neo-Polinarianism. And I had a conversation with him a few days ago where he articulated and defended Neo-Polinarianism. But his main argument was not uh, not centered on the divine mind, as as he would articulate the logos mind uh, taking on human flesh, but rather what he, he would say that we have a fundamental disagreement on what being man is. So he said that in the neo-Apollinarianism uh, model. Uh, that Christ did, in fact, take on all that is man, that he is uh, man in his very uh, being. So he was – let me rephrase that. He took on everything that is in man. He has a full human nature, but that human nature does not include the mind. So I wanted to to ask you guys how you would – how you would argue against that, how you would define a an orthodox anthropology, what man is, uh, because my friend is uh, very much more educated in philosophy uh, and this philosophical model of anthropology than I am. And I wanted to apologize at the end here for stumbling over my words. Uh, I'm not very articulate. 
but uh, thank you guys ahead of time, and I can't wait to hear your answers. Bye. So I think we can both agree, Tony, that our brother Alex is throwing out a great question here. And I love that people are having conversation. This sounds like just some great casual conversation about Christology and what is orthodox and what is not. So here's how I understand Alex's question. So he's got this friend that contends that the difference between orthodox Christology and neopolinarianism is just a fundamental disagreement on, disagreement on what it means to be man. And so kind of traditionally in the neopolinarianism schema, Christ took on a full human nature, but that human nature did not include the mind. So how would we argue against that claim and articulate an orthodox anthropology? And, and I think even before maybe we get to that question to anticipate where you're going to go first, we probably should look to somebody who embodies this view and has articulated it as a context for the question. How do you feel about that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think it's a great question. And um, I'm just going to say this. We didn't do affirmations and denials, but I'm going to go ahead and do a denial here. Please. Um, we deny against William Lane Craig. Boom. So this view is uh, really the only person that I know who actually holds this view is William Lane Craig. Um, and I suppose by association, J.P. Moreland, because it was um, put forward in their book, Philosophical Foundations uh, for a Christian Worldview. Um, so I have in my hand the second edition, which I received courtesy of InterVarsity Press. Um, I don't know that they would love that I'm using it for this purpose when they gave it to me as a review copy, but uh, it's in my hands and they can't stop me. So I'm going to read, I'm actually going to read the entire section where he puts forward this uh, proposal. Um, and it starts on, uh, it's in his chapter on Christology, which is chapter 32, which should actually probably tell you a little bit of something about what William Lane Craig thinks in terms of the priority of Christology in his overall philosophical theological system. Again, boom. Yeah. And it's on, it starts on page 605. So I'm actually, this is pretty lengthy, so I'm going to read the whole thing, but I think it's important to let him speak in his own words, um, because one of the things that... William Lane Craig is famous for is that no matter how carefully you try to articulate his view, he's going to tell you you did it wrong and that you can't possibly do it right because you're not a philosopher. So I'm just going to let his words speak for himself. And you'll find we get about uh, two lines into it before he says something stupid. Uh, so here it is. It says, we postulate with Apollinarius. Uh, Apollinarius is the arch heretic that founded a heretical school of thought in the fourth century called Apollinarianism, which was one of the first major heresies the church tackled. So the fact that he postulates, or we might say affirms with Apollinarius is a little bit troubling. So right. he says, we postulate with Apollinarius that the Logos was the rational soul of Jesus of Nazareth. So I'm not going to quibble too much at the fact that he seems to separate the Logos from uh, Jesus of Nazareth, because that's not really what he means. But even just the phrasing of that uh, as sort of like two entities really bothers me. He's not an historian. It's actually the only uh, major heresy in the earlier church that has to do with doctrine of God or Christology that he doesn't affirm um, in some sense. But that's problematic. Um, so here, I'll read the whole thing here. It says, what Apollinarius correctly discerned was that if we are to avoid a duality of persons in Christ, the man Jesus of Nazareth and the divine Logos must share some common constituent that unites their two individual natures. 
Chalcedon states that there is a single hypostasis that exemplifies the human and divine natures. That hypostasis is identified as the person of Christ. The question is how to make sense of this. If there exists a complete individual human nature in Christ and a complete individual divine nature who is the Logos, then how can there be not be two persons? Apollinaris pr uh, proposed that the Logos replace the human mind of Jesus so that there was in Christ a single person, the Logos, who is united with the human body as much as the soul is united with a body in an ordinary human being. On Apollinarius's view, it's easy to see how a single hypothesis can exemplify the properties proper to each nature. Unfortunately, Apollinarius's view was radically defective as it stood, for a complete human nature involves more than a hominid body, so that on Apollinarius's view, the incarnation was really a matter of the Logos assuming not humanity, but mere animality. Moreover, Apollinarius' opponents rightly charged that such a view undercuts Christ's work as well as his person, since Christ did not have a truly human nature, but only an animal nature, and so could not have redeemed humanity. So up until that point, he sounds really great, right? He's identifying the problem with Apollinarianism. He's identifying what the church critiqued. Uh, he's saying that the critique the church had was right, uh, and that the, the problem with Apollinarius is that uh, Christ doesn't assume a human nature, but sort of just assumes like an animal body, like a, a physical body. Right. But then here's where we where he goes wrong. Uh, this is still page 605. It's going to flip over to 606 real quick. But are these defects irredeemable or irremediable? Can we appropriate Apollinaris' insight without falling into his error? The answer is no. Uh, his answer is yes, though. Let us see. Apollinarius may have been misunderstood when his critics charged him with giving Christ a truncated human nature. When Apollinarius argued that the Logos was not only the image of God, but also the archetypal man, and in this later sense already possessed human nature in his pre-existent form, his opponents like Gregory of Nazianzus understood him to mean that the flesh of Christ was pre-existent. Apollinarius may have been more subtle than this. What he may have meant is that the Logos contained perfect human personhood archetypically in his own nature. The result was that, assuming a hominid body, the Logos brought to Christ's animal nature just those properties that would serve to make it a complete human nature. Thus, the human nature of Christ was complete, complete precisely in virtue of the union of his flesh with the Logos. As a result of the union, Christ did indeed possess a complete individual human nature composed of a body and soul, for the nature was made complete by the union of the flesh with the Logos and the archetypal humanity. So there's a little bit more to read, but I just want to pause. So he says here that Apollinarius's view was radically defective as it stood. And then he summarizes the critique of Gregory of Nazianzus. And then he really just restates Apollinarius's view and says that it was right. Right. So, so he's complete there. And I should, I, I should, I say he, because I think he's the principal architect of this view. It's really both of them. Um, Moreland has his name on this, so we can associate him with this as well. Although I do believe that this was written by William Lane Craig, but he's just completely self-contradictory within the span of less than a page. Uh, he goes on, he says, such an interpretation of the incarnation draws 
uh, draws strong support from the doctrine of man as created in the Imago Dei. Human beings do not bear God's image in virtue of their animal bodies, which they have in common with other members of the biosphere. Rather, in being persons, they uniquely reflect God's nature. God himself is personal, and inasmuch as we are persons, we resemble him. Thus, God already possesses the properties necessary. I'm going to read that again. Sorry. Thus, God already possesses the properties necessary for human personhood, even prior to the incarnation. Lacking only corporality. The Logos already possessed in his pre-incarnate state all the properties necessary for being a human self. In assuming a hominid body, he brought to it all that was necessary for a complete human nature. For this reason, in Christ, the one self-conscious subject, who is the Logos, possessed divine and human natures that were both complete. This reformulation, or in parentheses, he says, or rehabilitation of Apollinarius's insight nullifies the traditional objections lodged against his original formulation of it. For on our view, Christ is both fully God and fully man. That is to say, he is all that God is and all that man ought to be. He has two complete natures, human and divine. All he lacks is sin since his individual human nature, like Adam's, is uncorrupted by sin. Because Christ has a complete human nature and thus fully identified with our humanity, his atoning work on our behalf is efficacious. Our proposed Christology thus lies safely within the boundaries of orthodox marked out, of orthodoxy marked out at Chalcedon. Well, with all due respect, which isn't very much, you're wrong, sir, Mr. Craig. You are not correct. So let me break all this down. <clears throat> William Lane Craig denies um, the idea that natures are a thing. So he holds a view that most people call nominalism, but he chooses to call anti-realism. And what that means is that what a nature is, is a collection of properties. It's an Aristotelian view that any entity that has a particular collection of, um, of properties can be named a particular thing. And that's why it's called nominalism. He, he basically affirms in some places that his view and nominalism are really not all that different, but he's named his view anti-realism to a so, uh, to avoid some of the negative, um, associations that nominalism has in different areas of the philosophy. Right. And so what he's saying fundamentally, and it sounds like um, it sounds like our listeners friend didn't actually really understand this about Craig's theology, because what he's saying is very different than what Craig says in this section here. And what he says in the rest of his book is that prior to the incarnation, God, and in particular, the second person of the Trinity, the son, the Logos, had all of the properties that are necessary to be considered human, except for the fact that he did not have a body. So, so whatever it means to be human, that is not, not material, the son already possess. And actually both the son, the father and the spirit, all three possess. The problem is that now what we've done is we've taken human properties and we've imported them into God. And so what Craig says is that when the, when the Logos who already has all these human properties assumes a human body, that he's now completed, he has a complete human nature of Christ. The, the main problem with that though, is that you don't actually have two natures, right? You have one set of properties 
And that set of properties now adds a, a, a second set of properties, which is really just the physicalness to it. But you still, if you add one set to a second set, you still just have one set that's now comprised of both sets, but it's just one set now. So if I have the set one, two, three, and I add to it the set four, five, six, I now have one set that is one, two, three, four, five, six. So this is why I say he actually affirms pretty much all of the major heresies, because now we have Christ who's not just one person, but he's one nature. He's one set of properties. And a property, a set of properties is what Craig uses to define a nature. But more right. importantly than that, Craig's view, even though he says it's a complete human nature, it really isn't. And the reason for that is because human minds are not infinite. Human minds are not uncreated. Human minds did not exist in eternity past. But the mind of Christ, the Logos, did exist in eternity past. It was not created. It is infinite. And so even though he says that um, the mind of Christ, even though he says that the human nature of Christ is the same as Adam's human nature, Adam's human nature, Adam's mind was created. My mind, right. your mind was created. So it's not, it's not the fact that in William Lane Craig's view that Christ has a human mind because human minds are not infinite. So the, the, the main problem is that Craig has redefined nearly every major understanding of Christian theology that there is, right? He holds a foreign theology proper to the Bible and to the historic Christian testimony. He denies divine simplicity. He denies divine immutability. He denies divine impassibility, either implicitly or explicitly. He denies those first two explicitly. He denies the third at the mo at the very least, he denies it implicitly because the human mind of Christ, the human soul of Christ is the divine soul of Christ. And that soul experienced spiritual anguish on the cross. And so right. no longer is the person of Christ immutable or, or impassable according to divinity, but the divine logos suffered on the cross as divine quad quad divinity. Right. So he, he denies that um, he denies classic Christian uh, ontology, which has nature's not just being a set of properties, but being a real thing, right? My nature and my person are, are one thing, but there's a distinction that we draw between a nature and a person. It's not just that I hold a particular set of properties and Jesse holds the same particular set of properties that makes us human, but that we have a concrete human nature that is generically the same between the two of us. And so we are both humans. And in the Trinity, there's a concrete divine nature that's not generically shared among the, the Trinity, but numerically shared among the persons of the Trinity. So, so William Lane Craig has redefined almost every important piece of Christian theology, and he really is a modern day Socinian. Right. He's taken all of these different things. He's changed their meanings. He's applied the same terms. And so when when someone comes to him and says, well, wait a second here, it seems like you're saying Christ doesn't have a full human nature. He goes, no, 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 no. You're just misunderstanding me. You don't have the, the requisite philosophical knowledge. But right. he really does in this section of his book. He starts out by saying Apollinarius had a radically defective view. And then he says, but maybe we can, maybe we can get some insight from it. And then he basically goes through, he restates Apollinarius's view almost verbatim and says, look, I solved the problem. And then he says this, this restatement re or reformation, and then in parentheses or rehabilitation with an exclamation part. He clearly thinks that he's taking Apollinarius's view 
and he's employing it in the situation somehow in a way that does isn't subject. And what it really comes down to, if you read that, it's not that Apollinarius was wrong. It's that Gregory of Nazianzus didn't understand Apollinarius. And if Gregory of Nazianzus just understood what Apollinarius was saying, then then he would have understood that Apollinarius was actually right. And if we just understand what William Lane Craig is saying, then we'll understand that William Lane Craig and Apollinarius are actually right. And the fact of the matter is, no, they're not. William Lane Craig holds a heretical Christology. He holds it proudly. He holds it in print and he defends it. And I don't know what any other way to say it. Fair enough. I mean, so essentially what we're saying is the difference between Orthodox Christology and Neo-Apollinarianism is not a fundamental disagreement on what it means to be man, unless you want to radically redefine every conceivable definition right. that's accepted of what it means to be man. So, right. And what you brought up, I think, is the best touch point, and that is this aspect of what he draws out in terms of the mind of Jesus. And he said elsewhere, like the divine aspects of the logos are largely concealed in Christ's subconsciousness so that he has a waking conscious life that would be typical of any human being. But, and this is the, this is the actual metaphor that he uses, like the mass of an iceberg that's sub submerged beneath the surface. Yep. So in the same way, his divine subconsciousness lay in the fullness of his divinity so that there's the waking consciousness that was typically human. And here's where I would say, hopefully this is helpful to Alex, because I think all that background is right on point and really necessary to really, like you said, make sure we're understanding what is at stake here, but also like the full context of what's being said. And the issue, the place where you can lay the boot down on this is really in the issue of Jesus' consciousness in that neo-Apollinarian view. And I would say there's a couple of questions that, that you can throw out in terms of conversation to help us logically sort through that and push back. One would be, you know, absent a distinct human soul or human mind that, that interacts or supervenes on a human brain, how are we arriving at this split level consciousness? Like if, if we have, if all we have is a divine person with an infinite divine mind and a divine will, rationality, freedom, et cetera, all that stuff, plus a human body, are we saying that the son's divine consciousness takes on dimensions and levels it did not have before its interaction with a human body. Right. And that's getting into what you talked about in terms of like the simplicity of God. Beyond that, does that represent a change then? And here goes to impassibility, a change in the divine nature then, or are all, all those levels of consciousness now possible because of the interaction between the logos and the quote unquote meat of the human brain, so to speak. Yeah. So the addition of layers of consciousness to the divine mind is definitely not the logic of addition which the fathers at Chalcedon had in mind. I mean, they saw the Logos assuming humanity to himself, leaving the divine nature unchanged. But it's hard to see the Logos remaining unchanged in his becoming the soul of the body of Christ if this is now adding layers of self-consciousness to the single mind he has. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, and this this is so... I'm just going to say it. I've been dancing around it, but I'm just going to say it. William Lake Craig is a heretic. He's a heretic. I mean, there, there's no other way to say it. He, he holds a heretical Christology. He teaches others to hold a heretical Christology. He sort of mock, he actually mocks statements like the Nicene, Def, the Nicene Creed. I don't, it's not in philosophical, it might be in philosophical foundations. I don't know off the top of my head where it is. He actually says that the doctrine of eternal generation is a primitive vestige of a Neoplatonic Christology. 
So he's calling eternal generation, which is a bedrock of Trinitarian theology. It was literally the way that that Athanasius defeated the Arians in the fourth century. That's a primitive vestige of Platonic Christology. So he mocks Orthodox Christianity. Um, He refuses to have any sort of direct debate about this because he considers it an in-house debate in air quotes. It's not an in-house debate because if you don't believe what the church believes about Jesus Christ and his person, you're not in the same house as us. So I, I don't use that term flippantly. And I, I pray for William Lane Craig regularly. Um, I pray with tears for William Lane Craig regularly. Um, I've spoken to him directly about this. I spent a lot of time trying to talk to sort of the devotees of William Lane Craig, who for for whatever reason are just blinded to this. But he's leading people astray in such a way that it will result in many souls perishing in hell. And that is a serious, serious accusation. But I think it's one that can be backed up. And so we have to we have to confront this head on. But if you look, he really does affirm everything except Nestorianism. And actually, in the words in in this book, there are some things that seems like he really does kind of draw a distinction between the Logos and Jesus of Nazareth. Now, that's probably just linguistic because his whole system, if you really boil it down, is actually constructed to avoid what he believes is a latent Nestorianism in Chalcedonian Christology. So he's trying to push against Nestorianism. But he he believes that um, the sun is... um, the sun changes, which that that introduces temporality, which actually makes the sun a creature uh, in a, in a strange way. Um, he believes that the sun and the Father and the Spirit as persons are not the fullness of deity. So so not only is the son less than fully God, but the spirit and the father are less than fully God. So that's some sort of weird mutation of Arianism or, or originism, I suppose. Um, he believes that uh, the Trinity is is a unitary thing. Um, I actually was talking to someone who who knows William Lane Craig's philosophy and theology well. And I said, what Craig is doing is he's created one single hypostasis that is God. The Trinity is a hypostasis and the persons are component pieces of that hypostasis. And, and that guy said to me, you know, I don't think you would use those terms, but that's probably right. So he's a Unitarian, but then he also draws this overly strong difference between the Father, Son, and Spirit by denying simplicity and saying they're component parts. Well, that's tritheism. So William Lane Craig is now a, a, a Unitarian and a tritheist at the same time. Um, he denies that the Son took on a complete, uh, concrete human nature. So he's a he's a Apollinarian. He would say that the incarnation, in some senses, is illusory. Because the human the human mind of Christ is infinite, so it's not really it's not really you know human. It's it's right. infinite and an uncreated. So that's docetism. Um, he would say that the Son suffered spiritually on the cross, but since there's no human spirit, then God suffered on the cross. And since right. the divine nature is is somehow shared between the three persons, the the Son is a part of the Trinity, and the Trinity is is the one God. Well, then the one God suffered on the cross. I mean, you can keep going through all of this, right? Except for Nestorianism, he hits all of the major ones. And I've said this before: there is a schizophrenic quality to heresy. That, that heretics, whether it's William Lane Craig or Arius, Arius did it too, Nestorius did it too, they all do this. There's this schizophrenic, um, self-contradictory nature where you end up 
affirming these contradictory theses, trying to tie it all together. And the reason for that is because the incarnation is an incomprehensible mystery. And so right. if you insist on trying to rationalize it as the Sasanians did and the modern Sasanians, I would put people like John Frame in certain senses in with him on this modern Sasanian thing. If you rationalize it like the modern Sasanians did, instead of going to the Bible and being comfortable with the mystery, you end up with these self-contradictory heretical entailments. And, you know, William Lane Craig is a smart guy. He's far smarter than I am. He's far smarter and far more, more well-studied philosophically than I am. But I can tell you this. I am confident that I know systematic theology better than he does because these are errors. These are self-contradictions that are right on the surface of his theology. And I don't know why he can't see it. I mean, I guess, I guess it's just being blinded by something. Maybe, maybe it's pride. Maybe it's, it's the devil. Maybe it's sin. I don't know. He's blinded to the fact that these contradictions exist. So I, I, I want all of our listeners. I know that we have this, this tendency to get frustrated with people like this and, and it's okay to be frustrated. It's okay to be angry. He's leading people astray. But before you continue in frustration, I want every single one of our listeners to stop this recording for a second and pray for William Lane Craig and for his salvation, because it's not enough to just point out the errors and call someone a heretic. We have to actually go that extra step and pray for him. And I, uh, this will never in a million years happen, but I would love the opportunity to have an actual public dialogue with him on this because he refuses to discuss this in any sort of meaningful fashion. If we get a response to this, which we may, what it's going to be is it's going to be a one-sided response with no dialogue, and he's going to brush it off. He's going to swat it away like it's a fly. And I guarantee you he's going to say that we just don't understand the philosophy behind it. And there's just no way to reason with someone who won't have a conversation. So stop this recording, pray for William Lane Craig, and then start it up again, and we'll go on to the next question. So in the final analysis, what we can basically say to summarize is that really neo-Apollinarianism is just Apollinarianism warmed over with an effort to avoid Nestarianism. And beyond that, Alex, we've also hopefully communicated that this difference between Orthodox Christology and Neo-Apollinarianism is not found in the definition of what it means to be a man. In fact, it's quite the opposite because those that, held that hold that view a la William Lane Craig are actually redefining the humanity of Christ and not the other way around. So right. we, we should definitely move on because I'm, you're going to melt your microphone soon. So yeah. we, should, we should get to like the next question. Yeah, let's do it. All right, here we go. Hello, gentlemen. This is Jimmy from Philadelphia. Uh, I had a question regarding a certain type of language and just wanted to see what you guys' thoughts were. Um, in a couple complementarian circles, I've encountered people who describe fathers and husbands as sort of pastors of their own household. Um, I don't necessarily see a lot of direct biblical justification for this. I was wondering if you guys had, A, encountered this language before and if you've had any, any thoughts on it. Thanks. Grace and peace. So our boy and brother Jimmy from Philly has another great question for us. And that is, you know, have we previously encountered this idea that fathers and husbands are pastors in their own households? Is that biblical? So let me start off because I, I think you and I are probably on the same page, but actually I, I don't really know. But this is what I would say about that just straight off the top. And that is that the role of pastor has parallels with the responsibility of the husband and the father, but they're definitely not the same. In all cases, on all accounts, your pastor 
is the pastor of your family. I understand that like what we're saying here is there overlap in terms of like some of the, the parallels in terms of the responsibilities, but it's not the same. And I do kind of bristle at some of that language because one, I don't think that we find that articulated clearly in the scriptures. And second, I think it can lead to either confusion or in some cases, the sense that there is kind of like undue influence on how we understand like the spiritual responsibilities of the husband or the father as if they are co-equal in some way with the pastor. Because, you know, it's clear from scripture that the pastor is a man of God called and separated for a specific ministry. And that is primarily the preaching and the teaching of the whole counsel of God, especially the gospel and always maintaining a relationship of prayer on behalf of the saints. So a pastor's primary calling is to preach and teach the word, particularly the way of salvation, which is the gospel of grace. And he should be able to, of course, present sound doctrine that cannot be censored. So he's a steward and administrator of, of God's ministries. I think what happens is that we tend to, or people tend to kind of imbibe or through osmosis, get this sense from the scriptures that, well, a husband and a father is like a pastor. And I think part of that is because the scripture often equates the fact that the pastor is like the father of his flock. Because yeah. at least two times in Corinthians and in Thessalonians, you have Paul writing something to like that very extent. So in, in 1 Corinthians 4.15, he writes, For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Or in 1 Thessalonians 2, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So for me, it's, it's not to say there isn't something, you know, particularly redeeming about trying to draw that parallel or say that, well, of course, like a father is this pastor over his household. I get what we're saying there in a sense. I just think the label is too strong and it's really meant to go the other way around. What say you? Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. So let me put it this way. Um, neither of us are parents, so take this with a grain of salt. But the role of a father and the responsibilities of a father over his family uh, is pastoral in nature, but that does not mean that he is a pastor. So exactly. um, I, I'm a pub admin, and when we're working at our absolute best, our role is pastoral, right? We see the, the reform pub we see it as a, a teaching opportunity. We're sharing the faith. We're there to encourage people. At times, we have to correct certain kinds of discipline or certain kinds of behavior in the pub. Um, and at, at best, it's a pastoral role. That does not mean in any sense that we are pastors. I mean, some some of the pub admins are pastors, but there are very few people in the pub for whom they are their pastors. Right? So I, I agree with you. It's really troubling to me when I hear this because... Um, there are actually some uh, some positions in Christianity, um, like the, the really extreme patriarchy movements, where the father actually serves as a, a barrier for the, the pastor to his wife, particularly, and his children. And so right. if the pastor needs to exercise church discipline over those people, then, uh, then the, the pastor goes to the father— and the father exercises church discipline over the his, his wife or children. Um, and so I, I think it's really, um, it can be really damaging. And it, it, it actually prohibits or inhibits what God wants to do in the church. Not because God wants to replace parents in the church, but because, because the role of pastor 
or elder is different than the role of a father. And so, yes, a father is responsible for the spiritual instruction of his children. Um, is right. responsible for, um, for disciplining them and raising them up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. But that does not mean the same thing as being a pastor. And both those two roles are meant to, to work uh, symbiotically, not, not in conflict or in contest with each other. And that's what ends up happening when you hold this view. I think sometimes this idea is well-intentioned because it's trying to make fathers and husbands, the male leaders in a household responsible and accountable for doing the things that you've said. But even if it's innocent, it's just a bridge too far to cross and it becomes potentially problematic because you know, like you said, the, your, your actual pastor, the one who is shepherding the local congregation, whom God has elected in charge with that specific role, with all of its pertaining responsibilities, and then also all the responsibilities that come with judgment for the behavior and for the, you know, the taking on of that, that job. If there is a barrier there and it's being created because of this weird titleage, then that is absolutely a problem. And that, that actually is a detriment to the family the way that God has created it. And, you know, I, I'm with you in the sense that like teeny, te- teening, training and teaching the whole counsel of God is the responsibility of Christian parental units that cannot be delegated to another person. But think about how different that is between like what God has charged the father or the mother with doing and like your pastor. They're not in the same wavelength. They're not in, in the right. same realm. And so there, there really needs to be kind of a healthy respect and almost kind of a holy dread there in the sense that yeah. they're very different roles. So this is one of those places where we really should just fine tune our language when we speak about that. And I'm glad that Jimmy brought it up because this is one of those places, again, I see most of the time this occurring because somebody is trying to emphasize that there is a real role responsibility the parents play. They should not abdicate either the training and the teaching or the wielding of authority or the disciplining, but it just goes a little bit too far, but it's going too far in a way that's, you know, trying to be well-intentioned. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't, I don't know if it was like this when you were growing up and, and I wouldn't ask you to say this on the air, so please don't. But I know people who are PKs, Pester's kids, who've actually sort of experienced either not really having a father or not really having a pastor because sure. their father was their pastor. And so they've experienced this weird disconnect where like a single person can't be both. And so when we, when we start to replace or we start to position the father as a pastor in the home. Um, Like I said, I think for the most part, if I'm being as charitable as I can, for the most part, when people say something like this, what they mean is that a father is supposed to be pastoral. Um, exactly. Meaning they're supposed to shepherd their children. They're supposed to um, they're supposed to raise them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. They're supposed to teach them spiritual things. They're in some sense responsible for their spiritual growth and nourishment. But the language of saying that they are a pastor really concerns me. And and then to take it another step, um, what happens when there's a single parent household and it's just a mother, right? Is right. that is the mother not responsible for for spiritual upbringing of the child? Um, and and in that case, is the mother a pastor in the home? So like we we end up in all these weird spots when we have these category confusions because then now we're having to say like, well, a mother can be a pastor in the home, but obviously can't be a pastor in the church. Well, yeah, right. a mother can't be a pastor in the church, but that also means she's not a pastor in the home. If 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 the word pastor means the same thing or roughly the same thing in both of those contexts, then we have just excluded egalitarianism or complementarianism as a uh, as a position. So we just have to be really careful and precise with our language. Exactly. I'd much rather that somebody say that a pastor 
is very father-like as opposed to saying a father, a father is very pastoral. It just right. makes more sense to me. And, and to, to Jimmy's question, you're not going to find any language in the Bible that confers the responsibility of the pastor in that title to the father. In fact, you're going to find it the other way around. That right. Paul is often speaking about pastors as fathers themselves in terms of this filial connection that they have with the people to whom they're ministering. That's just the yeah. bottom line. Yeah. All right. Ready for the next question? Yeah. Let's do it. Hi, guys. Um, this is Jamie. Um, I wanted to call back here. I think my uh, previous question was cut off, so I'll try to maybe condense it a little bit more this time, this time around. But um, first of all, I just wanted to thank you guys for your podcast. It's been incredibly encouraging to me. I've um, been listening to it for over a year now, and um, very edifying, very educational. Um, God has used it greatly um, to benefit to benefit me and um so keep up keep up the good work um, i wanted to ask about um christian persecution as it comes to comparing america with other nations um since i've been a christian i've heard a lot of people say that um christians in america have not been tested truly we haven't been threatened um to be killed we haven't been threatened with prison, um, family members have not been threatened um, because we're Christians, at least um, that we know of. Um, and certainly, we it's very rare um, that anything like that um, happens. It's, it's, not, it's not common, and people would say that you really can't know if you love Christ until you pass such a test as they're facing in places like North Korea and China and many country, countries throughout the world that you know, until you've been truly tested. Um, so how, I guess, how would we know, I guess we, how would we know that we will hold, that if something like that did happen to us, can we have genuine assurance that we really do love Christ, um, even if something to that degree doesn't happen to us, if the cost is very little to us? Um, can we still have, um, you know, can we still, how would we know that um, if those tests came that we would pass them, I guess? And um, what would be the scriptural references, I guess, um, to that? Because um, some of us may not be called to suffer in the same ways as other people throughout the world. And But it seems to me that the Bible teaches we can still have assurance that we are saved regardless of that. So I just wonder what your thoughts are um, on that subject, um, you know, how Christians in America um should deal with that in our conscience and um you know how we can uh you know walk with Christ and be assured that we do love him um regardless of what he calls us um to thanks guys god bless so Jamie brings up a great question that I think many people, if they haven't articulated, they've at least thought about at some point in their lives, if you've been in the church for any length of time, especially because in the West often we will have, if this is not top of mind for us, and some people it's more top of mind than others in terms of persecution of our brothers and sisters. And we should just say right from the outset that I believe we both feel very strongly about this, that in, we have more in common with our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world than we have with our unbelieving neighbor that lives next door, that there is a real filial connection there. And we ought to be laboring on their behalf in love, particularly praying that they would have strength, the strength, the Holy strength and the Holy spirit to withstand the kind of trials and persecution that they're, they're going through. 
And because we often forget that, you know, we have in the West, you know, like Persecution Sunday, for instance, where we feel like we really need to at least like rally around that time and draw our minds and some kind of specific focus onto what's happening around the world in our own family. And I think because of that, sometimes what happens is we get this sense of guilt where we often consider the fact that, well, that's not my experience and somebody's really got it a lot more worse than me. And what would happen if that happened here? And as Jamie mentioned, you know, things are changing in this country and that very well may be the case that there will be more explicit and forthright persecution of Christians, even in the Western world. But be that as it may, there are some that argue that we cannot know the resolve of our love for and fidelity to Christ without the testing that comes specifically through persecution. So the question is really good. Can we have genuine assurance that we do love Christ without such a test? And where do we find that kind of support in the Bible? You know, can we be sure that if faced with persecution, we will endure? And I, I want to start us off by going just like, I'm not going to beat around the bush. Let's go straight to the Westminster Confession. I already because have it up. Do you already have it up? Okay, so let me, let me, (laughs) you have it like perennially. It's just always up at any given time. It's true. But um, so are you an 18? Is that where you're going with this? Oh my word. I love you. We are. Well, the chapter is called The Assurance of Grace and Salvation. I know. This one was pretty straightforward. We didn't just land on it the same. (laughs) So here's what, and you can, I'll let you read it, but here's, I'm just going to take some quotes just kind of part and parcel to make the point. But so here's what it insists that. Certainly, we may be assured that we are in a state of grace. And the confession goes on to assert that in a couple of ways. So first of all, they're saying that it's, there's an infallible assurance of faith, and it's found, founded upon three considerations. One is that the divine truth of the promises of salvation. The second is the inward evidence of those graces onto which these promises are made. And the third is the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing within our spirits that we are children of God. And I want to say this from the outset, because I think this brings this dispels this myth that you have to be persecuted to necessarily know whether or not your love for Christ is real, whether or not you would actually have fidelity to him when hard pressed. And that is this possibility of certain and infallible assurance is really set against the backdrop of medieval and post-Reformation Roman Catholic views that paralyzed the church with this quote-unquote assurance that was at best conjectural or is based on rigorous participation in some kind of sacramental performance. So think about it this way. If what we're saying is, what we're postulating is, you must be tested, you must show, you must demonstrate, emphasis on you, that you can withstand persecution, then all we're really doing is turning this around as some kind of meritorious act that is outward looking that proves it. Notice what the confession talks about, which you can elaborate on, Tony, is that that is all Christ-centric. It's all Trinity-centric. It is what God has done on the inner man, because there can be, even as crazy as this sounds, there can be a hypocrisy to suffering physically. That is absolutely possible. And plenty of people suffer and are willing to go to their death for all kinds of ideologies that are outside of the Christian faith. So I think what we need to be careful here is that we're not trying to turn suffering into some kind of meritorious act that earns us assurance in our salvation. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, just let's just level set here, right? It is perfectly possible to persecute or to be persecuted 
and then to apostatize after that. So it's not Absolutely. as though someone there, there are, I mean, for every story that we hear in the, the underground church in China of someone who is persecuted and persists in their faith, there are probably 10 stories of people who are persecuted and stand up underneath persecution for a time and then fall away. So, right. so it's not as though persecution is some sort of infallible crucible. And if you make it out on the other side, that you're never going to apostatize. So the, the very premise of it is already is already problematic. And secondly, the Bible nowhere tells us to... Um, okay, let, let me say it this way. This question, maybe I'm still heated from the William Lane Craig question, but I don't <laughs> think so. This question actually has me heated a little bit because the assurance of salvation is one of the things that the Reformation recovered, right? right so, so it's central to reformed... And Lutheran thought um, to to hold on to assurance. That was one of the primary things we recovered. And so when when someone comes at it and undercuts assurance based on something that is not a biblical category, that really gets me frustrated. And so right. um, it, I, I just want to say it right out of the gate here that our assurance is not grounded in any sort of... Um, performance that we engage in. That doesn't right. mean that the fruit of our salvation, the good works that come forth from a sanctified heart empowered by the Holy Spirit are not good evidences which testify to our salvation, but they are not the ground of our assurance any more than they are the ground of our salvation itself. And so for me, one of the things that really, um, really frustrates me about this question is it actually is sort of, uh, it's ungrateful to God for the fact that we don't suffer persecution, right? In America, and that's not to say we don't suffer persecution in America, but when I think about the fact that I could meet this morning for church and that we didn't have to worry about, um, we didn't have to worry drastically about someone coming and arresting us or coming to attack our church or anything like that, rather than right. being like, oh man, I wish that I had something to test my faith by. I should be praising God that the gospel can go forth in a relatively free fashion. Now, it is the case that Christians in America and in, in Europe and North America and, and other Western civilizations have gotten lazy because of the lack of persecution. Like that's just a documented fact. So, so there's some truth to what he's saying that then in other parts of the world where Christianity is persecuted more aggressively, that there is, um, there is a more vibrancy of faith and that more people who call themselves Christians actually are Christians than in the West. But that's right. not to say that we should not get down on our knees every single morning and thank the Lord that he has caused us to be born in a place where the gospel can go about relatively freely. Um, so, so this, this question or this idea that we have to face persecution in order to have assurance of our faith, firstly, it, it undercuts assurance, which is a decidedly unreformed, unprotestant conviction. Um, I have on my desk a book called Saving the Reformation by, uh, by Bob Godfrey um, that was written uh, sort of in honor of the four, 400th anniversary of the Synod of Dort. 400th. And um, one of the things he goes at, and the reason he's saying it saved the Reformation is not only did it preserve salvation by faith alone, but through grace, or by grace alone, through faith alone, but it preserved pastorally the fact that the pastor can stand in front of his congregation and he can promise those that all who are in Christ, all who trust in the Lord will certainly be saved. And, and I like that you read um, paragraph two, but I actually want to go back to paragraph one because this is where we see the... Um, 
this is where we actually see the grounding of our assurance. And it says, right. although hypocrites and other unregenerate men may vainly be deceived, uh, may vainly deceive themselves with false hope and carnal pre uh, presumptions of being in the favor of God and a state of salvation, which hope of theirs shall perish. So what it's saying there is that, yeah, there are people who think they're Christians um, who have deceived themselves into thinking they're Christians and they're not. But then it says, yes, such as truly believe in the Lord Jesus and love him in sincerity, endeavoring to walk in all good conscience before him may in this life be certainly assured that they are in a state of grace and may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, which hope shall never make them ashamed. So, so confessionally, what we are saying is that those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ love him and are growing in holiness can actually be assured of their salvation even right if they've never had had their lives threatened because of it. Right. And I think that that's really important for us to land. Yeah. So while the certainty of salvation is grounded upon the objective work of Christ, the certainty of assurance is grounded upon the objective promises God gives us and the subjective discovery of those promises at work in us, which may include enduring persecution. Right. It's certainly a possibility. But we need to make clear this distinction between direct and reflexive acts of faith. Yeah. It's one thing to believe that Christ can save me. That's a direct act of faith. It is another thing to believe that I have believed, which is reflexive acts of faith. Right. So apart from the first consideration that Christ is both willing and able to save, there can be no assurance of faith in, in persecution or anything else. So it's actually pointless to move forward with the discussion about assurance. Yeah. Apart from a conviction of the truthfulness of the statement, Christ is able to save those who believe, which is basically what you just said. So if we were to give, if or I won't want to speak for you, but if I were to give like some things because you know, this was asked, and this is a good part of the question, you know, how can I know if my belief is genuine? And for that matter, like on a slight tangent, how do we know that we would be able to, you know, endure persecution? In some respects, I think the answer is, I don't know, except that I trust God. I trust Christ, who day by day gives me the strength to undertake that which he leads me through. And so I must trust in that. It, this is an act of faith, even because to say, I just don't know, but I have full faith and confidence in the one who has saved me, that when that time comes, he will give me every strength, every resource that is necessary. And because I know that it will be a supernatural resource, I cannot reason through it in my natural mind, yeah. because that is both impossible, impractical, and unhelpful. So how can we know if our belief is genuine? Here's what I would say. You know, because there's an obedience to the commandments of God. You know, in 1 John, uh, the apostle says, by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. So just that simple act, like you said, of obedience to commandments of God is, is practical proof in a sense. Second would be there's a practicing of righteousness. Again, from, from 1 John 2, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So those who have a genuine faith will display a life of faith, obviously. It's a life that's modeled and shaped by the obedience of faith. So they demonstrate a desire for godliness. The third thing would be there's always a radical breach with one's former life. And John, once again, expresses that so crisply. It's this radical comparison by employing this relative contrast in absolute terms, because he writes in chapter five of first John, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. So that's not to say that there's, we achieve perfection in this life. It is, however, to say that there is a passionate desire to forsake and to kill besetting sin yeah. always. And then lastly, there's a walking in love. And again, from John, we know that we have passed out of death, out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Whoever loves has been born of God 
and knows God. So going back to what you said about the Reformation, these are some of the very things that the Reformation put into the kind of the practical limelight, that this is how we know. It's not about what we do. It's not about what we say. It's about the interchange and regeneration that comes from a man. And then by way of our subjective processing of that, in a sense where we, we see it take root in our lives, not because we've worked harder, not because we somehow elevated our place, ourselves to the place of the deserving poor, but because of God's great mercy. And yeah. that is far better than having to say, well, I must do X or I must go through Y test to prove that I'm worthy enough. Because that's basically what you're saying, I think, in a sense. Not, not certainly what Jamie's saying, but I think with the questioner, where it's coming from is saying, I must do something to prove that I am worthy. Yeah. And that's the exact opposite of the gospel, right? Yep. Yeah. And it's not as though failing to bear up under persecution is the unforgivable sin. Right. right? True. I mean, Peter failed to bear up under persecution and it wasn't even really persecution. He failed to bear up under a, a like a teenage Questions. girl asking him <laughs> if he was from Galilee right. and he, he freaked out and denied, denied Christ like, and he was forgiven. So, so this whole question, um, I don't know anything about the, que- the this origin of the question, the person he was talking to, the, the content, I don't know. But the whole premise of the question runs 100% at odds with the Reformed biblical understanding of what Christ teaches about salvation and what the Holy Spirit has given us in Scripture regarding assurance. So it, it really is important that we land it, that our assurance is grounded first and foremost in the promise of Jesus Christ that all who are his will certainly be saved. And and secondarily, it's grounded in the fact that those who are saved will produce good fruit as the Holy right. Spirit empowers them. So right. so if you have those two things, right? I trust in Jesus Christ right now. Right now in this moment, I trust in Jesus Christ and I love him. I'm striving to follow after him and I'm seeing I'm seeing success in that striving because of the Holy Spirit's work, then you have every reason to be assured of your faith, whether you're being persecuted in China or whether you are walking down the street, you know, wearing a Christian t-shirt with, with, you know, Greek tattoos on your arm, you have the equal grounding for, for assurance of faith if all of those conditions are met. So I think it's, you know, I think it's really Unfortunately, the influence of Arminianism uh, coming out of the Reformation and particularly in North America uh, with the influence of people like Charles Finney and and um, Billy Graham and, and sort of that line of thinking in the sort of the evangelist movements, that that movement has really undercut the assurance of a lot of people. And right. it really is pretty sad. So, um, you know, read the book of Hebrews, read, read first Peter. Um, the, the assurance comes from Jesus, not from external circumstances. If anything, our external circumstances are not good indicators of whether or not we're saved. Exactly. Exactly. I appreciate uh, Jamie's question. I appreciate his kind words about how the podcast has been edifying in his life. That's really, again, to God's glory. Certainly it's not because of our silly little voices. Yeah. And so, I hope it sounds like there's a question that uh, he's run across and certainly I have run across as well. This kind of sentiment, we're certainly not frustrated with him. I'm really glad that he asked the question. Yeah, I think what you're, what people are hearing from our voices is just how passionate we are about the fact that we would be liberated from this kind of thinking that puts, even if it again is well-intentioned or is, is trying to show that there is something that we ought to demonstrate in order to prove our worthiness, that we get as far away from that type of thinking as physically possible. Because not only does that liberate us, that's the kind of thing, the, the kind of right thinking will read not only to right living, but it, that's the 
ironically, the kind of place that will prepare us for suffering. This actually turns it on its head. It moves us away from being prepared to suffer because it gets us focused on the wrong things. And so what we really need to be focused on is the assurance that we already have that cannot be taken uh, away from us. Yeah. And so I, I think that this is a great question. I'm glad that he brought it up. I'm glad that he was willing to lend his voice in that way. Yeah. One last thought before we move on to a final question, which we will zip through because this episode is already really long, is it is not too far of a stretch to say that the the presuppositions that lie under this way of thinking about things, that we must pass a certain test before we can have assurance. It is not too far of a stretch to say that this is the same error or at least very similar error to what Paul was fighting in Galatia. And exactly. here, here is what he says in Galatians 5.1. He says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. So, so do not submit again to external tests to validate your salvation. Right on. Do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Right on. I, you know what's funny? I was so about to quote that. And then I was like, ah. <laughs> and I, I don't know why I was thinking because uh, can we have too much scripture in this podcast? Is that even possible? Mm-mm. Never. I was expecting Never. a more vigorous response. But well, I had a mouthful I, of seltzer water. What I'm are you going to so, do? Sorry, you can see me. Sorry. You can see I took a big drink of water. <laughs> That, that was a setup. Why do you it believe we can setup. have too much scripture in this podcast, Tony? Hmm? Should we talk about that? <laughs> no, but we should talk about this last question. Yes. So let's do one final question for this episode. Hey, guys. This is Pete from Iowa. I am uh, holed up in an air conditioning unit up on a roof. Giant uh, building here. Uh, trying to escape the frozen tundra. Wind's blowing through here uh, pretty gustily. Um, anyway, I had a question about communion. Um, a church just started doing intention, where we dipped the cracker into the juice. And wondering what you guys' thoughts were on that. Is that appropriate? Is that acceptable? Um, should we try to steer away from that? Um, love to hear your thoughts. Appreciate it. Bye. So I love this question. Thank you, Pete, for throwing it our way. And thank you, Pete, for probably leaving a voicemail in the best situation that I've ever encountered, which is being on a roof with an air conditioner. That's an epic place for you to think, hey, you know what I should do right now is I should call the Reformed Brotherhood yes. and ask a question about intinction. So good on you, brother. So I can at least answer this in five words, which I'm pretty sure would be the same five you might choose. So the short answer is sip it, don't dip it. All right, back to you, Tony. Yeah, I, I affirm Joe Thorne on this. So we're, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this. We covered a whole episode specifically on this topic. It's episode 66 if you want to go back and look for it. Um, I agree. Intinction is just bad news. I mean, it's not it's so it's not like you're going to die. It's not like you are going to go to hell if you do intinction. But we as Reformed Christians affirm the regulative principle of worship which means that we worship God in the way that he's commanded. And when Christ instituted the sacrament, he instituted that we take and eat and take and drink. And just as a, just a matter of plain fact, dipping a piece of bread into a liquid and then eating that piece of bread is not the same thing as drinking that bread or drinking right. that liquid. It, it just is. <laughs> or drinking that bread. So like when I have a piece of pizza... There's grease on the pizza, but that's not the same thing as if I took a little thimble of grease and drank the grease. It's just not the right. same thing. Or there's there's milk in a cookie, but eating a cookie is not the same thing as drinking milk. So it's it's 
It's one of those things that seems like such a small deal. And in the grand scheme of things, I will acknowledge that the important part of, of participating in the Lord's Supper is partaking of the supper by faith, because it's by faith that we are united with Christ and that we experience him in the supper. It's right. not as though somehow the Holy Spirit is is blocked from doing that if you dip your piece of bread in the in the juice or wine instead of drinking it. But this does say something about your perspective on worship, and it actually says something about your perspective on the Lord's Supper in that you think that the most important feature of the Lord's Supper is getting the bread and the wine in your mouth. Because that's the right. thing That's the thing that I hear like, well, I, I'm still eating bread and I'm still getting wine in my mouth. Getting the bread and wine in your mouth is not, is not the most important thing, right? That's, that's like a Roman Catholic presupposition that the most important thing, this is the same presupposition that goes into like the wine only debate or the unleavened bread debate, that somehow the substance of the bread, the physical arrangement of the atoms somehow is is um, constitutive of the sacrament. Yes, it's true. Christ instituted in a certain way and he instituted with certain substances. But that that's that's a presupposition that the substance is the most important part and getting that substance into your mouth is the most important part. That's just a presupposition that doesn't really take into account what it is that the reformed position on the sacrament actually holds and finds to be important. Right. So just in case we should define it in case anybody's hearing this and not familiar with the word, you kind of did already, but so intinction, this fancy little word is, is the procedure of receiving the Lord's supper by dipping the bread into the cup. So instead of eating the bread and drinking the cup, one eats the wine or the grape juice saturated bread. And I of course agree with you. You know, the new Testament passages instituting the Lord's supper state clearly that Jesus first took the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. And then he passed the cup saying, drink of it. So right. here's the bottom line for me. It's just really curious to me that any Bible-believing church would want to administer the sacrament in a way that is different from Jesus' institution of it. it. Because the question we have to ask is, do we think we're improving on the procedure? Right. You know, if we think it is safe to disregard the Bible here, where else are we doing the same thing? And that may sound extreme, but this is like the slow slide. And I've never heard a good biblical argument, quite honestly, for intinction. All the arguments I hear are one of two things. One is what you already said, which is basically like, well, I'm still, isn't it like the still the same end? Uh, you know, I'm still getting the, the, you know, the wine or the juice and the bread. Or the second argument is, well, this is just easier to administer. It's usually an argument of that it just takes too much time to do it the other way. And this is just more convenient, yeah. which is really a horrible argument to do anything, but specifically or anything I would say in relation to sacraments, but specifically the Lord's Supper. Yeah. So I, I think we, maybe people are going to listen to this and say like, we're just, it sounds like we're coming at it too strong, but it, it's always, um, it always matters greatly how we respond to the clear teaching of Jesus. And we should joyfully desire to fully to obey the scriptures and are fearfully tremble at the thought of doing otherwise, even if it's something small, but especially when it might be something small, but it's been clearly instructed. Yeah. So I just don't think there's a lot of leeway here. Like, so I guess at the end of the day, my question is like, why do it differently? And if we were doing it differently merely because 
this, we don't want the service to be too long. Then we just need to find like a, a different, we, I, we just need to change our expectations. Yeah. We, we just need to, I guess that's the bottom line. I would say change the expectations. So I think the challenge is that, um, I, I think in particular for Pete would be to really maybe talk to his elders about why they do it this way, get a sense from them and then see what their response and their answer is to why they've undertaken intention, especially because it sounds like from his question that that's a recent development. So yeah. I'd really be curious to know what has changed why and what what is their what's the theological reason the bible based reason for why they decided we should change course cuz well I, I get what you're saying about this being a relatively small thing the change of course for me implies like a bigger decision something has happened or maybe there should be more effort undergoing or underpinning the decision that was made yeah yeah and and you know we should do we did do a whole episode on this like i said episode 66 i'll put a, sh- a link in the show notes um but we should do an episode. We should do another episode on the Lord's Supper because there's been a number of like online debates that I've been a part of that I think would be interesting for us to talk about. So there's the wine only debate, right? And we've kind of talked right. a little bit about that, but there's the wine only debate. But something that I actually came across that I think is is a big deal and I haven't ever thought about it really is let me ask this. Maybe you're going to self-incriminate or you're going to incriminate your church. I hope not. Do you guys use something that was at some point a full loaf of like a single loaf of bread, or do you guys use like the pre prepackaged little communion wafers? We use prepackaged. Yeah. So that's one of those things that I think we don't even think about is Paul actually invests specific symbolic meaning in the fact that it's a common loaf. So right. he he points out that it's a common loaf and he roots the fact that we have a common loaf because we are a common united people. And so there's explicit symbolism that's invested divinely by the apostle in the scriptures that we just kind of gloss over. And then there's specific things that we are commanded to do by Jesus in and by Paul in the Bible that we just don't do when we do intinction. So it right. seems to me like, and I bet we could probably, I could probably trace this historically if I really wanted to do the work, but I don't, so I won't. But my theory would be that this, this actually is a result of evangelicals sort of just like kind of calling it in when it comes to communion. Like it's just not that big of a deal to them. And so they haven't thought deeply about what the symbolism is, what the scripture actually commands. Some of it probably roots from the fact that um, in most evangelical circles, it's really more about what we're doing for God than it is about what God's doing for us in communion. Um, It's more about like, we're doing this as a, as a bare memorial or somehow some sort of public testimony. Um, You see the same kind of thing happening with baptism where if all it because all it is is a public statement, then that's where we get silly stuff like people baptizing themselves in their bathtub on Facebook, um, or you know you have weird weird stuff going on where people are like baptizing themselves in the shower, or you know. So right. I think it's just a probably a side effect of the fact that most churches have not really spent the time, and most evangelical pastors, in a lot of senses, have not spent the time to really study and understand what the church has taught and what the Bible actually teaches about the sacraments. So I think if we just go back to the scriptures, we we do what God's commanded and we don't invent our own rituals, we're going to do a lot better in, in general. Yeah, that's well said. I, I totally agree with you. You could even make the same argument for like Common Cup, for instance. I mean, right. there's a lot that we should unpack that some other time because I totally agree with you that I think the what God does for us 
and our community of faith in the Lord's Supper is totally undervalued. Yeah. I think it really has become an expression of this is something that we eat together and we show one another. And there's a part to that that's absolutely true, but it's probably the tail and not the dog. And we generally tend to think of it, or at least I think you're right, in general evangelical circles as this is something that I do for God. Right. I'm doing it for him, showing him, doing something of a sacrifice for him. So not to mention that one of the big, I would say, misunderstandings, and this is used, I don't want to say in passing, it's part of usually the administration or the explanation of the Lord's Supper, but this is one of like, uh, this has got to be like top five biblical, misinterpretive pet peeves for me. And I think we said this before, but I got to say it again because now I'm fired up, is this whole, sometimes when pastors administer a Lord's Supper, they quote the scriptures incorrectly by saying, this is my body broken for you. That is not what it says. <laughs> so uh, the fact Darn that, especially you, because- James. Yeah, exactly. The King James is the only one that translates that way. And it's a horrible translation. And for the most part, anyway, usually people are not, I would say like eight times out of 10 are not quoting from the King James. Yeah, They've just got the sense that the bread is being broken. They translate that verb or transmute that verb over to Jesus' body. And the fact that Jesus' body was not broken was a fulfillment of one of the prophecies. So it's just wrong altogether. So there's so much wrapped up in the Lord's Supper that I think we should really spend some time analyzing. But I, I think we can say safely that intinction is really not the preferred method, and it's certainly not the one that Jesus gives to us. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's probably time for us to do another baptism episode if we're going to talk about the sacraments. <laughs> so I, I'm just throwing it out there. It's probably time. Uh, you know, so speaking of that, do, do we need to just make that like an annual thing? Like we just talk about that from now until eternity. We should just put the baptism like on the schedule yeah. and we'll just hit it up. You know, we should do it like, like most churches do communion. It'll be like the first Sunday of every month is baptism debate <laughs> Sunday. Let's not do that. I've really Let's enjoyed having like an hour and a half a week that I don't debate baptism with a Baptist. Oh, well, that's great. So, and, yeah. I, and I enjoy the same thing. But I, we should talk about it again because I've always enjoyed actually my conversation with you because I know that you're not antagonistic about it. Like you're concerned about having fidelity to the interpretation of scripture in a way that comports with the conviction that you believe God has given you. Yeah. And I hope that when others hear our conversation on it, that we're filling a different space with that respect because we're trying to come to a kind of a loving understanding of what the scriptures say without just like trying to beat each other up over it. Yeah. Well, we should probably wrap this up because we always forget that we have to add in voicemails in post-production. And uh, this is going to be like an hour and 40 minutes long. So people will love it. It's true. So uh, what's that voice? What's that phone number, Jesse, in case people want to call in and contribute to our next supersized episode? Yeah, absolutely. So again, thank you to all the brothers. Uh, It's all brothers this time. We need some sisters. Get those sister voices in here. Uh, you can call and leave a voicemail for us at 607-444-2767. Yes, that would be great. All right, Jesse, this has been a good, successful question cast. I think we've settled has. all of the debates about all of these things. Uh, I'll be expecting a phone call from William Lane Craig on our voicemail that he is repenting <laughs> in ashes and tears. Um, wow. No, I I really, I really do. I probably shouldn't joke about that, but I'm really serious about what I said about taking time to pray for William Lane Craig. Um, I want our, our brotherhood, our community to be not just a people who are, are quick to be critical of bad theology, but are quick to recognize that people who have bad theology are not the enemy, right? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. William Lane Craig, 
Um, although I don't actually consider him to be a brother in Christ, he's not my enemy. So I, I hope that you right pray for him. I hope that you take time to really try to understand what he has to say so that when we encounter people, we can pray for him. And um, yeah, we'll see what happens. I don't think much will happen, though. I've, I've tried. I've tried many times. It just doesn't it doesn't happen. Well, on that note, let us <laughs> let me close us out. <laughs> so until next time, sip it, don't dip it, and honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Oh.